Thank you, Ralph, for uh, reading Philippians chapter 4 for all of us. If you have been with us uh, the past three weeks and now this fourth week, then you have just heard the entirety of Philippians chapter 4 read to you as we are going through Philippians in our study together this summer. My name is Will, and I serve here as a student pastor. Um, humbled to be here. And uh, as we've gone through Philippians, I want you to kind of have a little recap of where we have been and, and then also kind of give you a short little vision of where we are going here in chapter 4. Uh, first week, Job came out of the gate uh, just like a, a, a rock star on, on a bull, man. He, he was uh, riding around in that rodeo, and he said, what's in yo blank? What's in yo blank? And he said, I'm saying it this way so you will remember. And I think all of us have, in fact, remembered the question Philippian, uh, Philippians chapter 1 calls us to ask is, what are we making the center of our life? And I think all the time it comes back down to me, myself, and I. And the challenge there is uh, to, to get away from being self-centered, be, being prideful, and instead let Christ be in our blank. Then in uh, Philippians chapter 2, we affirmed the divinity and the humanity of Christ, our King. We looked at Him coming, seeking to save the lost. And then in chapter 3, we just got kind of nitty-gritty with the gospel as uh, John Bracken led us through what the real gospel looks like and what are some of those hallmarks of the biblical gospel. So now we are in Philippians chapter 4, and we are going to uh, try very, very intentionally to see Philippians chapter 4 in the context of the entire letter to the church in Philippi. So as we get in there and as we start to see some of the context, some of how uh, all, of, all of these parts are interconnected, and nothing really stands off by itself. There, there is no island here, but all of this works together to teach us the person of God and to teach us the gospel. Uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to jump into uh, Philippians chapter 4 together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your blessings in our life. Father, I pray each and every day that we would humble ourselves, that we would pause, that we would reflect, and that we would seek you out as the leader of our lives. Father, help us to see all the many ways that you are teaching us and growing us and sanctifying us. Lord, help us to see all the many ways that you show your love to us. And may we live lives of worship, obedience, praise unto you. Lord, may we this morning be diligent to soak up the truth of your word. God, for myself, I pray that I would be obedient to preach a true, clear gospel, that I would not uh, use my words or my thoughts or uh, any of my own being to uh, muddy the waters of what your word is teaching us. God, use me as an instrument, as a tool, as a mouthpiece uh, for your holy word. God, I pray that I too would be willing to be convicted by your Holy Spirit, even as I preach this morning. God, that all of us would be encouraged, Lord, and that this would lead us to worship you. God, we love you and we are grateful. We are thankful for Christ, our King. We praise you for sending him to die for us, raising him from the grave that we might believe and be saved. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So when we get to Philippians chapter four, as I've studied this, one of the uh, uh, things that, that seems almost 
too easy to do is to start getting into Philippians chapter four, and then you see the, these almost independent clauses. And it really doesn't seem like there's a lot of uh, cohesive unity uh, to, the, to the chapter in general. Uh, if, if we read it that way, we're really missing uh, the big idea, however. Uh, you know, you see some of these, these hallmark phrases. Uh, verse one, it says, uh, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then you have a break, right? And so we say, okay, well, Paul is saying, stand firm. Well, that is something I can do. I'm, I'm going to stand firm in the Lord. And then the next paragraph, he's instructing uh, the, the church in Philippi to help these two ladies, which I think is, is really encouraging for us to look at, that, that Paul kind of highlights these two women by name. Uh, he calls them out for being laborers in the gospel, right? There's an encouragement for us to not be uh, chauvinistic or, or one-sided in how we serve our church. But, but he says, help these women uh, to settle their dispute. Now, we don't know what they, their dispute was, but the the, the takeaway could be, well, I need to settle my disputes. And then we get to the next part in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And really this entire book uh, could possibly be summed up with that word rejoice because it is a, it is a word that Paul uses so frequently here as he is uh, kind of encouraging the people to rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. But, but here, here's, the, here's the challenge. What we must challenge ourselves to do is not see these as merely one-liners to take away and, and apply to our lives, but see all of this fitting together, right? If you're on a bicycle, you know that it in fact does have pedals but the pedals are connected to the overall unit itself. And that's what we see here in Philippians chapter four. So here's my argument out of the gate. I want to let you know that all of Philippians kind of builds upon this poem that Clint read for us and preached from in Philippians chapter two. So we're gonna see that, let's read it together. And that will kind of be our building block for moving forward in the chapter. It says, but, and I'm gonna give you that, that pronoun he, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it appears that all the proclamations of this letter, all the commands in the letter, all the exhortations in the letter, all the theology that we learn from this letter is built upon this statement, right? They all stem from this proclamation, which is a gospel proclamation, if we understand it rightly. And it tells us that Christ entered our realm. He came into our sphere. He comes into our existence as fully God and fully man. And he does this in order to suffer and die upon the cross, to be resurrected from the grave, to defeat death and hell in order that we might believe, be saved and worship the triune God. And this worship is an attitude, it is, it is a practice, it is an existence in our being that lasts eternally. So yes, Philippians 4 does offer some very powerful one-liners. We, we could call these life verse one-liners and we could print them, we could frame them, we could hang them on our wall, we could have them engraved on a bracelet, we could tattoo them on our biceps, but we need to know that they don't stand alone. They are connected to the entire framework of this letter to the church in Philippi. So yes, we can stand firm in the Lord. 
because Christ stands before God on our behalf. We can settle disputes because Christ has settled the ultimate dispute between us and God the Father. We can rejoice. Again, I say rejoice because we have read, we have believed, we have embraced all that Christ has accomplished for us. We rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in our blessing. We rejoice in our fellowship with one another and in the countless ways that we experience God's grace. Why are we able to rejoice? Because of what Christ has done for us. Now, moving forward, we're coming to perhaps the most famous verse in Philippians. Not just the chapter, but arguably the entire letter. And I would even dare say this may be one of the most famous verses in all of Christianity. You probably know it well. Philippians chapter four, verse 13. So before we read it, I think it is, I'll take a deep breath here and pause, appropriate that we show the poster child for Philippians chapter four. This feels woefully heretical, like I'm committing high treason, but I present to you Tim Woo! Tebow. Tim Tebow. I expected that. So to all you Gator fans, I say please limit the number of your shouts and amens, please. Rob Ryan, Ralph Allure, Steve Parker, Joe Crow, just settle down. Sit back in your seats and your jorts, okay? Just stay where you are. So yes, Tim Tebow was an amazing football player for the Florida Gators. <clears throat> Sorry, brought up a little something extra. He set records, he won the Heisman, and he helped lead the team to a national championship. And that is how he is best remembered. And it truly seemed like when he was on the football field, he could do all things through Christ. And now in his uh, most recent years, it would seem to Miss Universe that he can do all things through Christ, right? Uh, they, he is engaged, they are set to be wed. So ladies, sorry, but unless God works a miracle, uh, I think I was talking uh, with Miss Cindy over here um, earlier this morning, but unless she, he works a miracle, uh, I think he is going to be betrothed to another. Uh, if I were to start a Christian sports apparel line, I would call it 413, I can be, because of Philippians 413. Y'all know that's good. Come on now. But the question remains, do we know what God wants us to know about Philippians 4.13. That's the question. So is this verse a battle cry uh, that, that we chant to ourselves as we are going into a job interview? We say, man, I'm about to meet with this person. My job is on the line. I could get the career of my dreams. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. Or young men, as you're pulling into the driveway of that person that you are just so fascinated with, you're trying to woo her. And so you say, Philippians 4.13, I can do, you better be praying that prayer if you're trying to woo somebody. That's all I'm gonna say, because... But do we, do we kind of put this away as a good luck charm, right? Or do we see this in the broader context of Philippians chapter four? That's the question. And, and I'm remembering the words of Pastor Joby when he says, context, context, context is the cry of the exegete. So let's look at a bigger section of scripture here, Philippians chapter four, starting in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Now the question is, what does God intend for us to learn and apply to our lives from this passage? You see, this one-liner is beginning to look a lot less like a sports motto. It's looking less and less like a superstitious prayer to pray before we scratch off our lottery ticket. So hear this, God is teaching that contentment is learned, and that's a key word there, learned through the highs and lows of devotion to him. I can't believe that I get to use a metaphor about chickens before Pastor Clint but here goes. He is far wiser than I'll ever be, that's for sure. I've asked him countless questions about how to keep my chickens alive and how to keep them from attacking my kids. <clears throat> but for almost a year now, we have enjoyed raising chickens and, and they're basically pets in our family. Uh, we have a picture here of our kids and their love for chickens. Oh. Uh, my kids love chickens. They love collecting eggs each day. And we're learning many lessons along the way, not just about raising chickens, but in fact, lessons about life. It's funny how God can teach us so much if we will open our eyes to what he is showing us. Uh, here is something. When you feed chickens, there's always a prize at the buffet. There, there's always this one uh, piece of food on the menu that seems to be what every chicken wants. And so when that one chicken, when one hen ends up with that a uh, piece of bread or, or that celery stalk or whatever, that chicken will almost always take off running. Why? Because the other chickens around have their instincts kick in and they're chasing, they're pecking, they're fighting, they're clawing for that one piece of food. Now there is a smorgasbord of food that we feed our chickens, but there's always one thing that seems to stand out among the rest and it's a free for all. Chickens are so prone to be discontent. We are prone to discontent. What is contentment? Let's first start with addressing what discontent actually is. Discontent is dissatisfaction with one's circumstances, dissatisfaction with one's savior. What is contentment? I love this definition from author Jeremiah Burroughs. Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You see, the Christian's contentment is found in God and God alone. Paul has unraveled the mystery. He has unlocked the door. He has discovered the rarest of treasures, true and complete satisfaction. Isn't that what many of us are searching for? Satisfaction, peace, joy, contentment. Whether Paul is dining at the biggest and best banquet with society's elite, or whether he is starving for food while behind bars, he is content in Christ whether he has the cool breeze in his face from the Mediterranean Sea while sailing, or whether he is drenched in sweat while being flogged by a Roman soldier, Paul is content in Christ. 
What an otherworldly mindset, what an un-American mindset that our satisfaction, that our peace, that our joy, that our contentment is not found in our circumstances or our situations, rather is discovered in our Savior. This is the dunamis, this is the dynamite, this is the power of Christ that has been freely offered to us through his death. So now we no longer need a cushy life. We no longer need a fluffy life. We no longer need a comfortable life because we have life. And it's that whole mindset that, that why do you need to beg for a hamburger when your father owns the mountain, the streams, and the cattle? You know who holds it all. And now, in fact, he holds you. So listen, church, we must cut ourselves away from the worldly message that says our happiness, our satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, and peace are discovered in getting what we want. We have a long list of wants, and sometimes they carry over onto the, need, uh, the, the list of needs. But how dare a child demand his parents treat him a particular way? It is not the child's right to determine what he or she needs. There is a reason, parents, to keep scissors out of reach of little hands. There is a reason for parents to wrestle through bath time. There is a reason to force down broccoli, I think. The reason is because truly loving parents know what is best for the child and offer what is best for the child. Perhaps the reason discontent is such a dreadful sin is because at its core, it is the sin of believing we could do things better than God. In what ways are we expressing to God that we could do things better than him? Sin, and particularly the sin of pride, robs us of contentment. Do you wish your life were different? Many of us do. Going into this study of scripture over the past few weeks caused me to uh, ponder many questions. So I ask, Father, am I content? Am I truly content? Uh, let's press in on that and, and ask maybe a few more underlying questions. What would make me happier what would make Will Cook happier? And maybe you want to adopt that question for yourself. What would make you happier? What would make you a more joyful person for your wife or husband or children or friends or coworkers to be around? What would make me a, a happier student pastor for my students to be around? What would make me a happier pastor for uh, my fellow staff members to be around? What if I was taller? <laughs> what if my kids were more obedient what if my wife was more obedient? No, I'm just kidding. What if I had one less bill in my monthly budget? What if I had one more friend that I could reach out to? What if I had no more headaches in my life? What if my siblings uh, reached out to me more and called me on the phone more? What, what, what if uh, the church experienced fewer personal problems and, and my phone wasn't quite as busy during the week? Would that make me happier? Rather than allow our circumstances to steal our satisfaction, we must offer supplication to the Savior who supplies for the true longings of our soul. There are a lot of situations 
that can bring us down. Life is not always a piece of cake. We know that. And, and, and one of the paths that I went down in this little short study here was asking, is there such a thing as godly discontent? And I think there is. You see, I don't think we should be content with suffering around us, okay? I, I don't think we should be content with sin inside of us. I don't think we should be content watching people run headstrong into hell. I don't think we should be content knowing that there are real spiritual needs that we could meet if we'd be more focused on the gospel. And, and let's just face it, Life oftentimes throws curveballs. And they're not always meant to trip us up. Sometimes life is just life. And so I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to say just kind of press on, grit your teeth, and bear through your circumstances. There are a lot of you who have some very serious situations in your life. So, so rather than just kind of bear through it and suffer through it and get through it, look to Christ. Right, that's what, that's what we're saying here. Give the Lord your supplications and trust that he is a good God. Keep the gospel ever present in front of your eyes because if we do not, then we will be discontent. We will lose joy. We will lack peace. We will be full of pride. And this is exactly the attitude that caused Adam and Eve to fall out of favor, right? We, we know that they were saying, God is holding out on us. God is not giving us what is best. I can bring joy to myself. I can do things better than God. God doesn't want me to have this, but this is what I really need. And so we turn the mirror to ourselves and, and look and say, what is that for me? In what way do I really believe deep in the core of my soul that God is holding out on me? In what way do I really believe deep in the core of my soul that if I were calling the shots, I would do things differently? You see, Paul has unraveled the mystery. And he said, it's not about my circumstances because my faith is in my Christ. We have to realize we cannot make ourselves happy. We cannot fix ourselves. We must not believe the lies that God is holding out, that God is selling us short, that God is out to get us, or he is merely disinterested in the details of our lives. When we believe we can do things better, we are just like a child telling his parents that his parents know nothing and they can't possibly have the child's best interest at heart. It is in fact telling God that he is not God, that we are God. So instead, we grab a hold of and believe forever the gospel truth that teaches it is not only or is not, it is not merely our circumstances or our surroundings or our situations that satisfy. Only our Savior truly satisfies. Two weeks ago, Claire shared this article with me. Amazing article. I want you to see this little snippet from Portia Collins. She says, Paul knew the secret. He knew the key to rejoicing in every circumstance. He knew how to maintain an attitude of praise, even in the worst of situations. Paul knew how to escape the tight grips of anxiety and worry. 
Paul had learned contentment that comes only from Christ. True contentment lies in being satisfied with Christ in and of himself. It's knowing you have a relationship with the giver of all things. And even if he doesn't give you all things, it's not because he's incapable of doing so. In his devotional, New Morning Mercies, Paul David Tripp explains, when you are satisfied with the giver because you have found in him the life you are looking for, you are freed from the ravenous quest of satisfaction that is the discouraging existence of so many people. In Christ, we have all we could ever want or need. Where does your hope lie? In 1873, Horatio Spafford penned the famous hymn, It Is Well. This hymn is still sung in churches across the globe today. Many do not know that Spafford, the author of the hymn, wrote these words at a time when most people would have shaken their fist at God. Spafford had been a successful businessman. Yet in 1871, the first of several tragedies would strike his life, and he lost his two-year-old son. And then in the Chicago fire of 1871, he also lost his investments. In 1873, his wife and four daughters were aboard a ship sailing for Europe when that ship collided with another. Only his wife survived. So now Horatio, losing his finances, losing his children, was traveling to meet his wife in Europe. And it was during this trip, sailing the same seas that claimed his four daughters, when he would write, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, the trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Through Christ who strengthens me. Not our circumstances, not our situations, not our spouses, not our best friends, not our children, not our health, not our finances. Through Christ who strengthens me, I can be content no matter what circumstances come my way. The same God who laid down his very life is the one who gives me life. The same God who suffered in my place is the one who pardons me from suffering. The same God who uh, bore the, the, the sin and shame on the cross is the same God who gives me righteousness that I do not deserve. He knows what I need and he knows it perfectly. For he created me on purpose that I would discover my greatest purpose in him and knowing him. Though sick, he is my health. Though poor, he is my wealth. Though pressed in on all sides, he is my victory. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am not content in my present circumstances. I am content in Christ. This morning, would we repent 
of our pride, which leads us to think we can do things better than God? Would we repent of the great error of our ways, which says our joy is found in the things around us instead of Christ within us? Let us pray. God, thank you for meeting us where we are and giving us the eternal abundance of your blessing. Thank you for giving us Christ. Father, may we strive each and every day to be content in Christ and Christ alone. God, would we present our situations to you through an attitude and an act of prayer when we are grieved by the things of this world and when we feel joy or peace slipping away, would we return to you and be reminded of the gospel? Would we be reminded of your love and your providence and how you supply every need in our life? Father, may we not look to this world only, but Father, would you give us the eyes to see the reality of the world to come? Lord, help us to repent, and Father, encourage us. Help us to walk as your obedient children because you have saved us, and help us to be a light on a hill that others would experience your goodness and your grace, and yes, your salvation. God, we love you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.